0: Lord, we thank you so much for uh, your word. We thank you that you have made your will and your plan known in it. And even those of us who come in today very familiar with what you have said in the Bible. Lord, we know that this book we will never exhaust, that its wisdom and its riches are endless, they are deep. And we know that this book is sufficient for our lives as Christians that you would use it to instruct us, to teach us, to guide us, to admonish us, to encourage us. And so this morning, I pray that through your word, what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, I hated History, the class, not the concept. And by the time that I was in the fourth grade, it got so bad that I was essentially failing that particular subject in school. And so, um, God bless my dad, being very aware of this situation and not raising a failure. No, I'm just kidding. He he was very kind and he wanted to help me. Uh, and so he took me to Hardee's, and I don't know if they still have this. At the time, Hardee's had these really big chocolate chip cookies that I loved. So he bought me a chocolate chip cookie one night after dinner. We sat down in a corner booth and he had brought my history textbook with him. And he opened up to the chapters that that test was going to be on the next day. And, uh, and so he started just kind of grilling me over all of these facts and dates and times and locations. Everything that I was supposed to know for this text the, the next day. Unfortunately, it didn't work. I still got a C on that test. Uh, And for pretty much all of my childhood, I really continued to not like history all that much. I would say it was really probably my least favorite subject all throughout even high school because I thought that memorizing what seemed to be these kinds of random bits of information, random facts and details was maybe the biggest waste of time that anyone could ever think of. Right, This did not seem very helpful to me. And it actually wasn't until I was in my 20s, when I was in college, that I actually started to really enjoy learning about history. And what changed between my, my childhood, growing up, hitting history, and then going into my early 20s is that I, I realized something. I realized that history was not just random, incoherent facts to memorize in some textbook written by a publisher that hates children. Um, What I did realize was that it's actually a story that is being told. It's a story that has started, you know, since the beginning of time, which I know sounds kind of cheesy, but that is what history is. And it's continuing to tell that story. And that story is not disconnected From my life. In fact, everything that's been happening in history continues to shape and influence the world that I live in now. In other words, I failed when I was a child to really understand the significance of history, the significance of all those facts, all those dates, all those locations and people. But once I understood its significance, I was finally able to go from hating history to now actually enjoying history, finding it beautiful and and interesting and significant. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a a history buff by any means, but, you know, I enjoy uh, a good biography now. I'll watch a historical documentary. I'll, I'll visit historical museums or memorials, and I will enjoy doing that as a person. Now, the reason that I share all of that with you this morning is that as we dive into our topic of The ordinances, which is what we're going to be looking at today. There may be some of us in this room who are incredibly particular with these, these two practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've participated in these things. Maybe even multiple times throughout your life, you have been very familiar with, very engaged with these two things. But you've never truly, fully understood their significance. And as a result of that, maybe you've never really understood or recognized their beauty, why they are important. And so my objective or or my hope this morning is that we we wouldn't just stay kind of surface level with the ordinances anymore, but that we would actually begin to understand what exactly is going on uh, sort of behind the curtain of The ordinances, that we'd really start to recognize all the beauty and meaning and significance that's wrapped up in these two practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there's a lot that we could talk about as it relates to the ordinances. We can get into a lot of very interesting questions like, When should someone be baptized? Who should be baptized? How often should we take the Lord's Supper together? And those are all very significant. Those are important questions. Um, And honestly, we could probably spend an entire month at least just going through the ordinances, looking at all those kinds of very specific questions because they are significant, they are important. But today, I actually want us just to take one step back maybe from some of those questions, not because they're not important. But rather, I want us to take a step back and instead look at why God has instituted these particular rites within the context of the local church. I want us to ask ourselves, what is it that makes them unique? What makes them even necessary as the church seeks to fulfill its mission and live out God's will collectively? So if you were with us last Sunday, you know we actually started a a new series in the book of Titus. Uh, And and if you looked closely, the subtitle of that series is called God's Design for the Church. And this sermon today is technically not part of that series. You've probably picked up on this already, but we are not in the book of Titus, right? Um, However, this topic of the ordinances is still very much connected to all that Titus is about. Because just like uh, church leadership, just like preaching of the word, just like uh, covenant membership in the local church, all these topics that, that Titus is hitting on, speaking into, implying throughout this letter by the Apostle Paul, just like all of that, the ordinances are designed by God ultimately to bless and protect and define Christ's body, the church. And so with all that in mind, I want to help us see how that's actually true. Why baptism and the Lord's Supper are so significant to the church. And I want to do that by just offering three simple kind of descriptors of the ordinances. So if you're taking notes, or maybe you've printed off notes that we offer in our newsletter each week, I want to just give you these ahead of time, and then we'll kind of dive into each one individually. So here they are. The ordinances are sacred, they're signs, and they're seals. The ordinances are sacred, signs, and seals. So first, the ordinances are sacred, Or you could even say, uh, set apart, if you want to kind of keep the alliteration going. And by the way, I am very proud. These all start with S, okay? So they are sacred in the sense that they have been sovereignly established, they've been put in place by God himself. In fact, the reason why we call these things ordinances is, is coming out of the idea that Christ Has ordained or put in place these two things in the local church. And we see that confirmed in Luke 22, the passage that uh, Eric read for us this morning. We see that when Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper to his disciples during the Passover meal, it's Jesus doing that. He's establishing this practice in front of his disciples and for his disciples. He's initiating. He's telling them to continue doing this, doing it in remembrance of him. We also see Jesus at the very start of his ministry, actually submitting himself to the act of baptism. And then later in the Great Commission in in, uh, Matthew 28, we also see him describe baptism as one of the means by which his disciples... We'll go out and make disciples. So in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. I've kind of summarized that for us. But that, if you look at Matthew 28, 19, that's what Jesus is saying. Make disciples. How do you do that? Well, by baptizing them and by teaching them. And so in both cases, with both baptism and the Lord's Supper, not only does Christ command that these ordinances be practiced or be observed by those who follow him, but he even models them. He demonstrates them throughout his earthly ministry in a very specific, a very clear way. In fact, what Jesus does with these ordinances is so undeniable, so clear and so specific that pretty much as soon as the church is born, as soon as the Holy Spirit falls on believers at Pentecost, you see these two ordinances being practiced by the the church's members and its leaders. So believers aren't just joining the church. They're not just going to church. But throughout the book of Acts, you see this language of believers being baptized into the church. The church isn't just getting together with one another willy-nilly and and you know enjoying dinner together. They're practicing the Lord's supper together by passing the bread and the cup. In other words, the ordinances are not the result of theological or liturgical evolution in uh, the history of the church. No elder or church member or creative thinker came up with these two practices. Christ has established them himself. He's modeled them. He's commanded them to be a regular part of the church's cadence and life. And because that's true, here's here's kind of the application of that point. The ordinances are not optional in the Christian life. They, they shouldn't be reduced to religious ceremony that's more connected to denominational affiliation or tradition or cultural norms than they are connected to biblical faithfulness and faithfulness to Christ. He is the one in his grace who has given the church these two specific ordinances. And he's done that for specific reasons. And so they have power, not, not in themselves, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that is true. They, they have power not in themselves, but they have power because Christ has ordained them. They are significant. They are beautiful because they are sacred. Well, not only are the ordinances sacred, but then second also, the ordinances are signs. They're signs in that they're meant to point to or or illustrate a far greater reality or idea beyond themselves. Another way of saying it is that they are physical markers that point to spiritual realities. And, And we could actually come up with a fairly long list of things that these two ordinances Point to, or they uh, they help us remember. I want to just highlight two for us this morning that I would say are, um, are are very significant, and really we could probably put a lot of things underneath these these two kind of buckets. But in terms of what the ordinances point to, here's the first one: the ordinances point us to the gospel. They point us to. The gospel. That's maybe the most, the most obvious, the most clear reality, the most clear reason why these two ordinances have been established in the local church. It is to point us to the gospel, and we see this in both Luke twenty-two and Colossians two, where the elements that are involved in the ordinances. So that would be water for for baptism, and then the bread and the cup for the Lord's supper. Both of those elements, or all those elements, are are tied to the work of Christ on the cross. So for example, in Colossians 2.12, we see that the apostle Paul says that those in Christ have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The connection that Paul is trying to to make here is that baptism is communicating visually what has been made possible spiritually through Christ's death and resurrection. That in Christ, our sin has been put to death. That has happened very literally, truly, effectively, And not only that, but we've then been made alive with him through the resurrection. And baptism is a reenactment of that reality. It's meant to point to that being true. We see the same kind of connection being made when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. So in, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus describes both the bread and the cup, As signifiers or symbols of his body that was broken and his blood that was poured out. Those are the images that should come to our mind as the ordinances are carried out in the local church. They're designed by Christ to make us remember what he's done so that we are right before God. Uh, uh, a theologian and pastor, Thabiti Enyabwili. Uh, he, he writes for Nine Marks. He's written a lot of great books on just the local church in general, uh, and church polity, and church practices. But he's got this very helpful illustration in talking about the ordinances, where he describes them as a neon light on the front of the church. And that neon light is just flashing gospel, gospel, gospel over and over and over again. And so if we participate in, or we watch the ordinances, and our mind does not run to the gospel, if the gospel is not the first thing on our lips, when we are doing these ordinances together as a local church, then either we aren't thinking about them correctly, or we just aren't doing them correctly. We're not framing them correctly. We're not practicing them Correctly, Because by their very nature, by their design, the ordinances point us to the gospel. That's why at Pennington Park, we believe that baptism should be done only after a person has been saved. It's why every time when we do the Lord's Supper, we describe that moment as sort of a family moment or a, a, a family Meal that's reserved for believers. Because in practicing those two ordinances, according to what Jesus has has said about them, how he's framed them throughout the New Testament, it's clear that we're literally acting out and proclaiming the gospel to one another when we practice those ordinances. And so, how can we proclaim and testify to that which we have not already? believed. We we can't truly and faithfully participate in the sign without first participating in that which the sign represents or points to, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only do the ordinances point to the gospel, second, as signs, the ordinances also point to union with the people of God or the local church, we could say. Now, to to, to fully understand that point, to understand that reality, we really actually have to go back to the Old Testament where God had given his people, the nation of Israel, these two uh, important rituals. And actually, God gave them a lot of different rituals. I think, though, as we, as we kind of look over the arc of Scripture, there's two that stand out as particularly significant. And so one was circumcision. We see that established in Genesis 17 uh, with Abraham as God is making a covenant with him. The other is Passover. Uh, that's instituted in Exodus 12 when uh, the nation of Israel is still in slavery in Egypt. And much like the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is given to the church today, circumcision and Passover were physical, tangible practices that in and of themselves did not necessarily have any power, but they pointed Israel back to the promises of God, which were given to their forefathers and of which they were now the inheritors, if they were in covenant with God. And so circumcision was a reminder that God was going to provide a Messiah through the offspring of Abraham. Israel's deliver was literally going to be born out of them. And so without getting into too much detail, I think it would be somewhat obvious Just thinking about it briefly, why circumcision would then be a reminder, a sign of that being the case, that God was going to use the actual genetic offspring of his people in order to produce the Messiah that he had promised. And the Passover was a reminder that not only had God freed his people from bondage in Egypt not only had he spared them from judgment by the lamb's blood that was then swept across those doorposts, but there was a day that was coming when he would provide freedom from the bondage of sin through the blood of Christ, who is the lamb of God that was promised. In other words, as Israel engaged in these rituals, they were reminded of their unique relationship with God. They remembered the unique promises of God. And those promises were made to them uniquely. It set them apart from all other people. Together, they were in covenant with God. And these two things, circumcision and the Passover meal, were covenant signs given to God's covenant people. All of that is important for us to understand because it's these two old covenant rituals in which Luke 22 and Colossians 2 both ground these two new covenant ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Just like the Passover meal celebrated and commemorated God's hand of protection over his people in Egypt. The bread and cup celebrate God's hand of protection from his own judgment and his own wrath through the sacrifice of Christ. And it points forward to the day when we, as one holy people, will feast with him in eternity. In fact, we've already even alluded to that this morning as we read from Revelation chapter five that there will be this, uh, this, this final supper uh, of the lamb, right? Where we get to partake in this meal together. And so we look forward to that day. Jesus was looking forward to that day in Luke 22 when he was speaking of not eating of the fruit or not drinking of the fruit of the vine until that day came. Just like circumcision distinguished, those who would inherit the promises of God through the line of Abraham, if they're in covenant with him. Jesus now sets us apart by a circumcision of the heart to borrow uh, language from Colossians 2.11. And what that means as we read other passages like Galatians 3 and, and, and 4 is that we now become sons of Abraham. We are adopted by God. And baptism signifies that new identity as members of his spiritual family. We are the people of God, and the ordinances are a sign of that. And so all that to say, the ordinances point us to the gospel, yes, but but even more, they're tangible reminders to us that through the gospel, God is establishing a new people under a new covenant. He's uniting all of us to himself and to one another. And every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, every time we perform a baptism in the local church, we are witnessing the physical proof, the evidence, the sign that God is building up and expanding his people through the local church. So that's why if you've you've gone through our membership process or you're just familiar with our membership process, we actually require people to be baptized in order to be members of Pennington Park. And, And we do that because that's how God has called believers to identify themselves with the body of Christ. That you cannot be a faithful member of the local church without first faithfully being baptized into the local church. Uh, Don Whitney, who's a a professor at Southern Seminary, has a very helpful statement on this, just kind of the the difference between uh, being part of the universal church and the local church as it relates to baptism. He says, when God brings a person into spiritual life, that person enters into the spiritual and invisible body of Christ, the universal church. But when that spiritual experience is pictured in water baptism, That is the individual symbolic entry into the tangible and visible body of Christ, the local church. That's why these ordinances are so significant because unlike anything else in the Christian life, they allow us to very literally act out and even observe the gospel both individually and corporately as we participate in them, we're reminded that we are the benefactors of God's mercy that's been shown through Jesus Christ. And because of the cross, we have union with Christ and with one another. Well, that leads me to my third and my final point, which is that the ordinances are seals. So not only are they sacred, established by Christ. Not only are they signs that point us back to Christ, but finally they are seals. Now, before I get too far down this point, I really actually want to clarify what I don't mean by this word. Uh, I think that's important because the New Testament can use that word seal in a couple different ways. And so what I don't mean by that is, is that baptism would Uh, secure or finalize our salvation. Uh, I don't think that our, our salvation hangs in the balance until we take our first communion or until we're baptized before the church. What I do mean by the ordinances being a seal, though, is that they act as God's mark of ownership on the believer. They are his mark of authentication for his people. We see that idea actually implied in verses 11 and 12 of Colossians chapter 2. So in those verses, Paul says that Christians experience a circumcision of Christ and he's sure to clarify that that is a circumcision actually made without hands, unlike the circumcision that we see in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. It's a spiritual, invisible circumcision. But the outward mark of that circumcision, Paul says... Is the physical act of baptism. It authenticates the inward transformation that has taken place through Jesus Christ. When when Abby and I were dating uh, in college, we kind of got into this rhythm or habit of uh, writing each other letters. And uh, obviously, I wanted to step up my game. I knew she was out of my league. And so. I went to Barnes & Noble, rest in peace, and I bought this wax seal kit. And it came with a couple very romantic red uh, wax sticks that you could melt down. And it had this metal stamp in it that was in the shape of a heart. And from there on out, after I got that wax seal kit, from there on out, every single letter that I wrote to Abby had that wax seal on it. I didn't need to write from Joel on the outside. I didn't even need to put my signature at the end of that letter, right? All she had to do was look at that letter and see that seal and know who that letter was from. That seal was unique to our relationship. It was my mark to her that confirmed my unique love for her, that I loved her in a way unlike I loved anyone else. Maybe another helpful example is just thinking about um, a, a diploma or a certificate. So if you've, if you've been to a, a doctor's office or you've been to a professor's office, a lot of times these people will have uh, their, their doctoral degree framed and uh, and hung on a wall, right? And uh, they're not necessarily doing that just because uh, they lack any self-confidence and they're trying to impress you, uh, but they are wanting to essentially kind of confirm something or authenticate something. And on that diploma, if you look closely, I think pretty much every diploma, you will find a seal or a stamp or a mark that's been placed on that paper By the university that awarded the degree. And the reason that they they place that mark on that piece of paper, the reason why that's important is that it authenticates whatever that person is claiming to be. By putting their mark on that diploma, the university is affirming that, yes, this person knows what they claim to know. This person is able to do what they're claiming they're able to do. They have had the training necessary to be experienced, to be a professional in this particular area. And in the same way, Christ has given us the ordinances, not only as a sign, but also as a seal, which marks us and authenticates our faith. It's not that being baptized or taking the Lord's Supper together actually gives us salvation. Again, it's not that the ordinances have any power in and of themselves. Just like I could print off a diploma or I could frame a diploma that had some kind of mark or seal on it. But if I haven't actually taken the classes, that diploma doesn't actually mean anything, right? And so much much in the same way, the ordinances affirm and authenticate the faith that we've been given through Jesus Christ. And it's that faith that saves us, not the ordinances. And so these two practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they really, truly are a grace from God, because even when our faith is, is weak and failing, Christ's has given us these two practices to remind us of our identity that is founded on rooted in the cross. Every time a Christian is baptized, every time the church passes the bread and the cup, it is Christ shouting at them and you, yes, you are mine. Yes, You are who you say you are because I am who I say I am. And I've done what I've said I would do. And so friends, the the ordinances are not a chore. They're not just this empty kind of religious routine that we do because we've always done it. They are a blessing and a grace to the church that God uses to mark us as... His. And so my question for us this morning that I think is only natural to ask is, what are you waiting for? If you claim to know Christ as your Savior, if you've experienced the saving grace that's been shown on the cross, then I just want to encourage you, do not settle for just professing that faith with your mouth. I want to encourage you, take on the mark of Christ, that authentic seal of your salvation through baptism. If you've been baptized, you're a member of the church even, but you've become maybe careless or, or indifferent, or maybe you're just misinformed about the Lord's Supper and, and the significance of that then I want to encourage you, we take the bread and the cup together once a month here at Pennington Park. It's typically on the second Sunday of every month. And so make that a priority. Be here. Use those moments to remember the gospel, to participate in this kind of covenant renewal alongside your spiritual family where you're being reminded of the gospel and the union that Christ has given us as the church. Don't take these ordinances for granted. They are beautiful. They are significant. They are beautiful and significant because they are sacred. They've been instituted by Christ as a grace to the church. He has established them. They are signs that point us to the gospel. that that remind us of our union that we have together. And they are seals that are authenticating and marking our faith, marking us as God's own possession. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that not only do you save us, but Lord, you give us these two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper to remind us of that truth to remind us of what you've done through the cross. And so I pray that we would not take these ordinances for granted, but that we would be eager to participate in them, that we would find joy in them, that we would look at them as opportunities to celebrate what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do all through the local church. And all of that is done in your grace, through your work, not ours. Lord, we thank you so much. We praise you for the way that you've worked in our lives and these small little reminders that you've given to your church. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.